0: Good morning. Welcome. Let's see. Mike Yang said he tells the soccer team, bring it in. And I'm saying that. Let's bring it in. All right. Here we are. I'm going to take the risk of the un- unplanned here. Um, we're a family and some of you maybe are here for the first time, some of you have been here for a long time. Um, as as uh, Mike uh, Yang mentioned at the beginning, you might find yourself in all, all, selves in all kinds of different places. Um, Mark Sand, it's good to have you back here this morning. <laughs> This is, this is Mark's first time back since his wife went home to be with the Lord and Mark was just reminding me in 1999, he walked into this meeting dressed in a suit and tie, He figured out, didn't need to keep doing that, but we are a family and the Lord is the same yesterday, today and forever and so we grieve together and we rejoice together and it's good to be together. And Mark, it's good to be together with you this morning. Um, whether you're joining online, whether you're here for the first time, welcome. My name is Mark Mullery, and um, this is actually in my peripheral vision and an- annoying, so I'm gonna take that off, sorry. Um, Justin Pearson uh, is one of the pastors here. He's preaching this morning at Fairfax Bible Church. And uh, we here this morning are in a series in 1 John called Life Together. We are in chapter 2, verses 18 to 27, and my dear bride Leslie is going to read the passage for us this morning, so please prepare your hearts for God's word.
1: Children, it is the last hour, and as as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him."
0: Wow. What is going on there? That's a tough passage. And yet it's God's word to us, so let's pray. God, we thank you that as Christians we gather, assemble before you as people of a new covenant. We thank you that your promise through Jeremiah was that in this new covenant, each believer would know you. Each one would have direct access to you by this anointing of the Holy Spirit, we have direct communion with you. And we pray now, O great God, through the preaching of this sermon, we pray that you would make yourself, your will, and your ways known to us. And above all, I pray that you would thrill our hearts with Jesus Christ, anchor our souls in Jesus Christ and keep the course of our lives individually and as a church set with eyes fixed on Jesus I pray. Amen. When people desire to become members of our church one of the things we ask from them is if they would answer a question explaining the basis of their assurance. We ask them to explain how they have come to believe that they have been made acceptable to God. So if I were to ask you this morning, what's the basis of your assurance that you're a Christian? What's the basis of your confidence that you belong to God? What would you say? What kinds of things might, might come to mind? The topic of that question is the topic of assurance, the confidence that a believer has that he or she belongs to Christ. And there are actually two sides to this, aren't there? On the one hand, there's a problem of false assurance. Matthew Mead, a pastor in England in the 1600s, wrote a book called The Almost Christian Discovered. The Almost Christian (coughs) Discovered. The book is is a, a sort of a discussion about how far a person could go as a professing Christian and yet still fall short of salvation. That's the problem of false assurance. There's another side to it though, and that is the one that comes into view in this passage. Actually, that's the problem that John is, is addressing in this whole letter we know as 1 John, and that's the problem of genuine Christians Lacking assurance that they actually belong to Jesus. Now our passage today holds the key for why this had become an issue in this group of churches to which he's writing. But before we get there I want to just highlight for you some of the ground that we've covered so far in this series. And, And I want you to sort of see the the response that John is giving to this problem. To this problem of genuine Christians lacking assurance, he offers what people have called tests. There are three tests, and he's he's just cycled through in, in this passage, he's hitting the third of the three, and he's gonna cycle through several more times before the end of the letter. But I want to just make sure that you're alert to these tests, these means by which He's intending these Christians to be assured that they belong to Jesus. So, the, so the, we'll, we're just going to take a quick skim through a, a couple key verses in chapter 2 to bring us up to our passage this morning. So first, he gives this moral test. It's a test of obedience. He says in chapter 2, verse 4, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, failing the test, right? Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly the love of God is perfected. So there's the the, the moral test. Are you you keeping his commands or not? The the second test, a few verses later, is a social test. It's a test of love. Look what it says in verse 9. He says, whoever says he's in the light. Remember he said God is light earlier. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness Th- those two things can't coexist whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling so here's the social test if you say you're a christian but you don't but you hate your brothers not there not working failing the test but if you love your brothers and sisters You're passing that test of love. And then today's passage brings the third test into view. It's a doctrinal test. It's a test of faith, of what you believe and who you believe in. Verse 23 of chapter 2, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Failing the doctrinal test, denying the Son, you can't be connected to the Father. But whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So how can you be sure you're a Christian? Well, one way to answer is to think about who do you love, how do you live, and what do you believe, right? And John is providing answers for how to pass the test as evidence of belonging to Christ. So what the Holy Spirit is saying to us this morning through John is, Listen, brothers and sisters, if you've become the kind of person who loves brothers and sisters in Christ, who keeps God's commands, who believes that Jesus is the Christ, not that you're doing any of these things perfectly, but you're doing them increasingly and as a pattern of living, if that's who you are, well, then you should be encouraged. You're in Christ. You should be encouraged. That means you have eternal life. You belong to him. Today's passage is going to focus on the third of those three tests, this doctrinal test. We try to sort of summarize what we we get in this passage. The summary, this is a a test of doctrine. It brings truth into view. And, And what I want to leave you with this morning is this. There is no truth more vital to believe than this that Jesus is the Christ. No truth more vital. This isn't a, well, you have your truth and I have my truth. No, there's, there is a central truth to Christianity and no truth is more vital than this, that Jesus is the Christ. Believing this, let us hold fast to this truth by abiding in the word and being taught by the Spirit. We'll see how that unfolds in the passage. So as we go through the passage, we're going to look at the situation. John was writing to this group of Christians in several churches. We're going to look at the situation. We're going to look at the lie that they had been told, and then we're going to look at the remedy. So here's the situation. Look back in your Bibles. Please keep them open as we go through the the message here. Look at verse 18. Children. Remember, children is the way John speaks affection, uh, affectionately to the, to the churches. It's not a pejorative statement. It's a statement of, 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 of affection. Children, it's the last hour. And as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Got that? Like that's clear, right? Okay, we just move on. No. In, In my opinion, these two verses are the most important verses in the whole letter to understanding the situation that causes John to write the letter and the situation that was robbing these Christians of their assurance. Now, we got to unpack what's going on here because there's a lot going on, and we got this last hour and an Antichrist and lots of Antichrists, and they went out from us. So, So let me just bring this interview with two questions. First, what is this last hour that he's talking about? We need to know what time it is, okay? Children, it is the last hour. Now, he answers the question. He gives some explanation if you just keep reading. It's the last hour. For the antichrist is coming many antichrists have come therefore we know that it is the last hour how do we know that it's the last hour he just told us because these antichrists have come okay so in these churches there were enemies of the gospel enemies of christ's antichrists opposers uh, uh, those opposing christ that had risen up in in these churches and he's saying the presence of people like that is evidence that this is the last hour now if they're antichrists you can't have the last hour before you have Christ to oppose and so I think the idea here is the last hour which had begun and continues the last hour is that time between Christ's ascension to heaven and his return we live in the last hour just like they did This harmonizes with what all the New Testament writers have to say about the time that we live in. What what time is it? Well, Luke, in Acts chapter 2, we read, In the last days I will pour out my spirit. Pentecost, quoting the prophet Joel. He's saying, We live in the last days. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, The appointed time has grown very short. Peter writes in 1 Peter 4, The end of all things is at hand. It's this close. Jesus himself is quoted by John in Revelation 22 20 saying, surely I am coming soon. What time is it? They're all saying the same thing. They're saying something like, hey, we are on the last page of God's calendar. The next thing that happens in redemptive history is Jesus' return. That might be tomorrow. That might be in another 2,000 years, just like it's been 2,000 years since John wrote this, or 1,900 years. But, but we're on the last page. It's the last hour. So Redeeming Grace Church, hear this. Know this. Let this sink in. It is the last hour. Okay? Okay. And we know this because Christ has come and now people have arisen to oppose him. So who are these antichrists? Many antichrists have come. Now, this is the only place in the New Testament where this language is used. And and we see here one central figure. You have heard that antichrist is coming. That's an individual. But you've also had many antichrists come. They, They went out from us. Okay, so it seems that before Jesus returns, there will arise at some point this one singular Antichrist, probably this man of lawlessness that we saw earlier in the year when we looked at 2 Thessalonians and chapter 2. Speculation about this Antichrist has spurred the selling of a gazillion books, right, and movies, late great planet Earth, left behind those were the 70s and 90s. There's probably another one coming soon. I I, I don't know. Maybe entertaining and interesting, but they're not theologically solid. We want to be clear, though. There will come at some point some individual that is labeled here antichrist. In the meantime, these antichrists, are human beings like us. These were people with names. They went to church in, in this group of churches. They went out from us, but they were not of us. A different kind of people. This isn't somebody just moving on and going to another church, right? This is a group of people, in effect, excommunicating themselves. They were almost Christians, not the real deal. They were were in church. They were neighbors and co-workers and they uprooted and left because they believed a lie. Believed a number of lies but I think the biggest one comes into view here. They believed that Jesus was truly the Christ, the Messiah. And when they left, it seems to have created sort of a vacuum It discouraged and confused the saints. And you maybe can imagine the situation if a bunch of people kind of uproot and leave, and maybe some of them were leaders, and some of them were in your small group and met met with you, or were your neighbors, or so on. And and they left, and they've got a different view of Jesus. And you might be left wondering, well, who's right? And like, well, maybe they know something I I don't know. And maybe I should check that out some more. Maybe I should... Is, am I missing something? And so you can understand, lies have those effects on people. So that's the situation. These, these people, they were amongst these churches, and then they would left these churches. And, and they were identifiable because they believed a lie. So let's look at this. They believed a lie about Jesus. I mentioned a couple weeks ago that John is sort of a creative writer He's very hard to outline. I'm trying to do this message in an outline, but I couldn't come up with a better way to do it, but I, I, the, the outlining is, is hard to do. Reading John is sort of like looking at, a, at an Impressionist painting or a mosaic right? You sort of got to appreciate the whole thing. And, and, and so we're trying to zero in on this little section here, looking uh, uh, at, at what they have to say about this lie. So we're going we're gonna to focus on this part. Let me begin by reading for you again, and get your eyes on these words if you can. Verse 20, but you, so they went out from you. They're not of us. They, they went out from us. They're, they're, but you, one still in the churches, so you have been anointed by the Holy One, and have all knowledge. I write to you not because you don't know the truth but because you know it and no lie is of the truth. Now, again, what's he talking about? What is this anointing that he's talking about? You've been anointed by the Holy One and you have this knowledge. What does he mean? Well, we might reach back to something that John wrote in his gospel and he surely taught these believers and that is that Jesus promised that when he left and sent the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit would teach his disciples. That is, the Holy Spirit would give them knowledge. Listen to what John 14, 26 says. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like you have knowledge you know the truth. Jesus says it. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, why, why does John describe this as the anointing? It's kind of strange language to us. But let's remember again the context of, of the new covenant and the context of, of the Bible. Jesus was able to give the Holy Spirit to his disciples because he had received the Holy Spirit during his time on earth. Read the Gospels, you find that out. This is often described as an anointing. When Jesus, in Luke 4, rises to preach in the synagogue, he quotes Isaiah and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has, what's he say? He has anointed me. The Spirit. He, these are parallel sayings. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me, to proclaim good news to the poor. So he's saying he's been anointed by the Holy Spirit. He's received the Holy Spirit. Acts 10, 38, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Think about this Jesus we're talking about. We call him Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name, right? Christ is the, the Greek trans, translation for the Hebrew word Messiah. Do you know what the Messiah is in in the Old Testament, the Messiah is the anointed one. Psalm 2, the kings of the earth have risen against the Lord and against his anointed. That's the Messiah. The Messiah is the one who would come with the anointing of the prophet to speak God's word to us, the priest to intercede and be our advocate before God and our king to rule over us. So Christ, having been anointed, is now able to anoint his followers having received the Holy Spirit, having ascended on high, he and his father send the Holy Spirit so that you, the believer, may have the Holy Spirit, okay? So that's the idea here is when he says you have been anointed, what he means is you've received the Holy Spirit. Now, that Holy Spirit is what we need to know the truth and to discern the lies, and the lie is here in verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Now, these people were denying that Jesus was the Christ, but they were in church with these people for quite a long time. What did they actually believe about Jesus? And we don't actually know, but as best as we can tell, they probably believed many positive and good things about Jesus. They probably had many good things to say about Jesus, just like many people today have many good things to say about Jesus. Perhaps they thought that he was someone who was born and died a man, but somehow during his life, he, he was invested with this, this Messiah-like personality or, 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 or divinity, Perhaps they thought that he was a man who was able to have those divine powers for a time, but not that he was the eternal son of God who was born of a woman, fully human and fully divine. I suspect the reason John starts this letter talking about the incarnation is because they didn't believe the incarnation. They didn't believe that the eternal son of God came and lived amongst us so you could listen to him, talk to him, touch him. That real. I suspect the reason John zeroes in on Christ as a propitiation for our sins in chapter two is because they were denying that you needed Christ to do that for you. Whoever does not believe that Jesus is the eternal Son of God incarnate as a human being, whoever does not believe that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, the one who is able to satisfy God's wrath and build the bridge to bring us back to, to him. The one who doesn't believe those things is denying that Jesus is the Christ. So hear this, you can like Jesus and not be a Christian. You can respect Jesus and not be a Christian. You can wear a cross, you can have a cross tattoo and not be a Christian. A Christian believes that Jesus is the Messiah, the God-man who died and rose again, the only mediator between God and men, the one who is so connected to the Father that to deny him is to deny the Father and to confess him is to have the Father also. This is the central doctrinal problem in these churches. And this is the vital truth we must understand and believe. Jesus is the Christ. Now, how do you do that? How do you live in the good of that? How do you hold on to that? How do you have the tools that you need to discern error from truth, especially in this arena. This is what John closes out our passage with. Look back at verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. What does it mean to abide? If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. This word abide keeps showing up in these few verses
1: what does it mean
0: to abide just like this word anointing we don't use that very often well here's another word that we don't use very often what does it mean to abide well to abide means to live to sojourn to dwell I'll give you an illustration my mom's mom my grandma Janie she's passed away now but for as long as I knew her Which was quite a few years, she always lived in the same place. This big old white house with the gigantic screened in front porch and the wonderful yard in the back. 939 South High Street, Bloomington, Indiana. That's where she lived. That was her place of dwelling. She abided there all the years that I knew her. I've driven by that house since she passed away and it's still her house. I know that's, that's where Grandma Janie lived. I can't disassociate that house from Grandma Janie. That's what abiding is all about. And this abiding is the key to protecting yourself against lies and this abiding is the key to living in the good of the truth. Hear God's word to you now. Let what you heard from the beginning Abide in you. Let what you heard from the beginning move in, take up residence, dwell, stay there for good in you. What is this that they have heard? Well, it's the gospel. It's this good news about Jesus that someone preached to them and they were converted just like you and me. This news is the word of God that he mentions back in chapter 2. The word of God abides in you. So now he's urging them this word of God these 66 inspired books that we call our Bible. This record of God's good news and his word to us this original unchanging message that you have heard, that they have heard, believed, and been born again, this message doesn't abide in you automatically. Wish it did. You can't get a, you can't get an implant that just causes the word to abide in you automatically. You need to Find ways for this word to abide in you. How do you do that? How do you get the word to abide in you? Come to church. Hear messages from the Bible. Keep reading the Bible. Meditate on it. Sing it. Apply it into your life. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. And here's the... So there's work to do. There are practices. There's a lifestyle that we want to develop of Bible intake, but there's also a great encouragement here. He says, verse 27, the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. What's he saying here? Here's something he's not calling you to have abide in you. Here's something that he says as a simple statement. It does abide in you. It's this anointing. Remember what that is? What's the anointing? It's the Holy Spirit, right? So what he's saying is the Holy Spirit abides in you, and so you don't need to be taught. Well, hey, wait a second. Like, one, that puts me out of a job. i got a problem with that. But John, isn't he kind of teaching, like when he's writing here? Like, how's that work? So here's, here's I, I think this is what he's, what he's getting at. You as a believer, you have been anointed. You have received the Holy Spirit. When you receive the Holy Spirit... Then you're able to hear the word and gain understanding, spiritual insight and understanding from it so that it, it accomplishes what God wants to inside of you. You have, you, when he says you don't need anyone to teach you, what he's saying is you don't need a human mediator. You have direct access to God. When the word comes together with a spirit that's already inside of you, God will teach you about him and help you to follow him. You know how that works, don't you? Because that's how you became a Christian, right? And you've had that experience, haven't you? This is, this, this is the ministry of illumination. There were times before you were a Christian when you might have heard the Bible, might have even read the Bible, and boing, it just would bounce off. It didn't do anything. What's changed? Why does it make a difference now? Why is it life-giving? Because the Holy Spirit, this anointing, is teaching you the word as you hear the word, right? J.I. Packer talks about this, this ministry of the Holy Spirit, this illumination this way. He says, it's not a giving of new revelation, but a work within us that enables us to grasp and to love the revelation that is, it's there before us in the biblical text as read and heard. And it's explained by teachers and writers. So this truth, this life-giving voice of God is right there in, in the biblical text in front of us and we can engage it and... And, and not have anything happen, or we can engage it, and anointed by the Spirit, we can experience God's nearness, presence, and word to us, and it begins to confront us. It begins to encourage us. It begins to instruct us, and it begins to shape us to be more and more like Christ. You know how this works. Haven't you ever had this experience where you've read something in the Bible, and all of a sudden, you see something that you never saw before? You know what I'm talking about? That's what, that's the Holy Spirit. That's this anointing working inside of you. Yesterday morning, getting ready for my Simeon Trust group. We were working in Isaiah 65. I, I thought I should read chapter 64 just to get the context. The first verse of chapter 64, says, says, is praying, oh God, that you would rend the heavens and come down. I, I, I've read that before. I understand. There's this desperate prayer, oh God, how, how we need you. But you know what happened when I read it yesterday? I had this thought. Isaiah had no idea that one day God wouldn't just speak or do something. God, the Son, would come, rend the heavens, and become a human being like us. For us and for our salvation. How would I have that thought? Because there's this anointing. The Holy Spirit is working in me opening up a word that i've read many times never had that thought before and oh what joy it brought to my heart so what he's saying is church believers there are lies we need discernment but you need the word let the word abide in you but you're not on your own god the holy spirit has come to abide in you 939 south high street i know who lives there I know who lives in you. The Holy Spirit of God has come to live in you. You're not alone. So, when the Word comes to you, you experience the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. And there's nothing that He teaches us that's more central and vital to who we are and to how we live than this that Jesus is the Christ. There it is. The gospel of Jesus Christ is our central message and only hope. It's one of our core values. So what do we do do with this? Just pull a couple threads together. First, hey, don't be surprised when trouble comes to church. and And I'm not encouraging you to look around and start identifying who antichrist might be here this morning, okay? I'm not talking about that. But listen, read your New Testament and just remember, trouble in church is like normal, all right? So don't be surprised. It's just how it works because there's an enemy that hates Jesus and wants to disrupt things. And there are people that are trying to disrupt things and deceive people. And we're still sinners too, okay? Second, when you find yourself confessing Jesus as the Christ and living in the good of his saving work, Be encouraged. You didn't get there on your own. There's an anointing. There's a work of God inside of you. The spirit is working in the word and and causing that to happen. And you recognize that and thank God for it and rest in that. Third, let us not forget or simply set aside the truth, the fact that Jesus is the Christ. We as a church intend to never, ever move on from that, to never modify that. And I hope to never cease to be thrilled by the central fact that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. For, for me, for my life, and for you, for our church, I, I'm not nearly as concerned about us denying Jesus as I am about us simply forgetting about him and trying to live our lives as Christians without actively connecting everything we do to him. That's my biggest concern for all of us. I find this in evangelism. Maybe you experience this too. It's easier to talk to people about church or the Bible or loving your neighbor than it is to, as Kenneth reminds us, to break the sound barrier and talk about Jesus as the Christ. Right? Everyday life. Parents, are we connecting our kids and what's going on in our homes to Jesus, to the Christ? You're in a conflict, disagreement with someone else. Does Jesus, the Messiah, come into view somewhere in that? Does he go with you on vacation? Is he still the Christ? Times of recreation devotions, is there a a time in your devotions where you remind yourself of who he is and how the grace that we receive from him makes it possible for you to live the day that you're about to go into or that you're just finishing? Does, Does Jesus as the Christ come into view in our community group meetings? May we let what we've heard from the beginning abide in us so that by the Spirit's power, the Spirit who already abides in us, this good news about Jesus makes its way into every square inch of our lives. Even into that spot where right now you're thinking, I can't even imagine how we could get a hold of that for his glory. That's the very place. You're not alone. The Spirit's in you. The Word is able to bring the glory of Christ into every crevice, every relationship, every memory, every aspect of who we are. And with that in mind, we're going to transition to receiving the Lord's Supper now. This is a family meal and a remembrance of who Jesus is and what he's done. If you're a Christian but you're not a member of our church you're welcome to participate in this. If you haven't begun to follow Jesus yet, I just encourage you not to participate in this but to take this time to really consider who Jesus is. Who do you say that he is? Maybe go find out who he says he is and spend some more time on this. I want to do something a little different for the meditation part of this. I'm going to just read you two verses from a hymn that some of you maybe know well, others maybe a little, and for some it may be new. It's a very old hymn. It's called A Mighty Fortress. It's written by Martin Luther, who greatly understood the centrality of Jesus. We're going to sing the song after we partake of the Lord's Supper here. But as we take the bread, I want to just read verse 2 for you. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing. to ask who that may be? Christ Jesus. It is he. The Lord of hosts, his name. From age to age the same. And he must win the battle. Jesus conquered our sins by dying on a cross. He's our king, the anointed one. Take in remembrance of him. And the cup, verse 3. And though this world with devils filled and I could add lies and antichrists and all kinds of other things should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure for lo, his doom is sure. One little word. One little word shall fell him. Surely as we hold this cup, so surely Jesus, one little word, so surely Jesus will return to make all things new. Amen. Until then, remember him. Would you please stand so we